What goes on behind closed doors at a care facility? Here's an insider and researcher's view that you just might be surprised about. Stay tuned. Welcome to Doing It Best with Elder Care Success, where we explore ways to relieve the stress, exhaustion, and overwhelm that we all face in caring for an aging parent, frail spouse, or partner. Fear, frustration, emotional and financial strain does not have to be your M.O. Stay tuned as we dive into different and new ways of finding more joy together with those that we love and care for and while keeping our feet solid on the ground. Hang tight. There is a better road ahead. Hello, everybody. It's Nancy May from Doing It Best with Elder Care Success. And this is a show I've been looking forward to doing for a long time. It's a subject that is passionate in my heart, and I know it's passionate in my guest, Elon Capsi, who's also a PhD and has been working in the field of aging care for over 30 years. In the past 15 years, he has conducted several research studies and improved the understanding on the prevention of various forms of elder mistreatment in care settings, including assisted living, nursing homes, and the like. This goes over abuse, neglect, resident-to-resident incident, resident-to-resident incidents. Let me get that one out correctly, Nancy. You know, it's been a long day, and it's only two o'clock when we're recording this, so stay tuned. There's going to be more. In any case, he is also an assistant professor of research at the University of Connecticut and an adjunct clinical professor at the University of Minnesota and a founding board member of Elder Voice Advocates in Minnesota. Elon has a lot to share here, and on top of everything else, besides being an author, a poet, a care advocate in long-term care homes, he has also recently written a children's book on how to teach children or help them understand a little bit about dementia and some of the things that our own parents are going through, or maybe it's a grandparent or somebody else. But besides being tough on us, it's tough on those kids too when they don't understand what's going on. So thank you, Elon. I'm so glad you're here with me. This has been a long time coming in my own desire to have somebody like you on the show with me, and I look forward to future shows as well. Well, hello, everyone, and thank you, Nancy. I was very glad when you reached out to speak about this this topic that we're going to explore today. So why don't you give me a little bit of background on what you're doing in really understanding abuse and mistreatment that's going on in the field of aging care. And I'm going to do a, a note out there to, to you who are listening, because not every place is bad, but the business of aging care has become a huge business and it's only going to get bigger as our aging population soars, not just here in the States, but around the world. So this is not just a U.S. phenomena. Uh, Elon has discussed this and, and researched it in other places of the world, and we've seen it. But um, that sort of gives foundation that not every place is bad, but stuff happens to be polite about it, correct? Yes. As you mentioned, I've been in the aging field for 30 years. The last 15 years, I focus on studying different forms of elder mistreatment, as you mentioned, whether it's injurious and deadly neglect, whether it's thefts of money and jewelry, thefts of opioid pain medications from older adults in long-term care homes, or whether it's fear of retaliation. My last project 
finishing it up. It's on privacy violations and the mistreatment of older adults in nursing homes through social media. Uh, when staff uh, take and uh, upload uh, photos and videos of older adults, either in compromised, undignified situations or actual mistreatment. And my goal with all my research is to inform and educate and advocate for changes, whether it's to inform families, inform care professionals and policymakers, including changes with legislation. Thank you. I, I really appreciate this. The challenge that we have in even understanding legislation and what's going on, because at least here in the States, and I know you've seen similar situations in other parts of the world, really is a state-by-state situation unless you're dealing with a medical facility. Is that correct? Well, for our topic today, which is assisted living sector, yes, uh, assisted living residences are regulated at the state level and nursing home are regulated, federal nursing home regulations. There are some exceptions to that, but that's in general the case. And the regulations, that is the standards of care, vary across states. So it really depends on which state you're talking about, and you really need to know what are the standards of care in your state, and what's the regulatory framework, and also what is the state agency that oversees the care, and and whether the enforcement of those regulations is meaningful or weak. I wouldn't say it's not the barriers to entry, but the barriers are the bar of excellence as I've seen, is fairly low as far as what those requirements are compared to what we might think of as family members who are out there looking at buying into a facility or even it could be, you know, our own parents that are looking to move into something like that. Are you seeing the same thing? Yes. And and again, to be fair, there's variation of quality across providers, but when the, the state regulatory requirements are so weak in so many states, uh, the bar is so low. And when you talk about states with uh, 70, 80 or more percent of for-profit entities, not to mention the real estate investment companies that are coming in and the private equity firms that are coming in, uh, rapidly coming in and buying care homes and driving the care quality to the ground and hiding oftentimes behind, behind layers of, of ownership structure, very complicated ownership structure, to the point that families don't even know who actually owns the care home. And that has implications for accountability. It's hard enough to care for your loved one, as you know, Nancy, in a care home. It's harder when you don't even know who to address your concern. At the end of the day, it's the owners that call the shots. You're, you're right. I could tell people that when your mom or dad or another family member are going into a, a care facility, it may be because you need to get them there and you can't do this yourself anymore or feel that you can do it yourself, or they want to go there to not be a burden to their family members. As my folks had said, look, at, you know, we don't want to be a burden to you and, and your sister. I never thought of it being a burden. However, that was their mindset. And, and I appreciate that very much, or I appreciated it very much. But what I've learned since my parents had been in this is the stacking, as you mentioned, the stacking of that corporate veil. And families who are listening or individuals who are listening, you really have to understand that the person that may have the hands-on care and responsibility for your parent is not the one at the very tippy top who considers you the customer. 
especially if it's an outside investor institution, you are, I call it the necessary evil for their customers, which are the investors. They want to profit. <laughs> and you're just another body moving through the system. Unfortunately, it's that's a harsh way of saying it, but it's pretty much what it comes and down to. To add to that, some providers use multiple names. I believe that to mm-hmm. some extent, it's not, it's not random. It's not it just happened to be this way. And so that creates more confusion among uh, family members. And that is with, in addition to another issue that we're seeing in some states where there's a split between the building and the care that is being brought from outside uh, by home health by home health care providers, and then you, as it, as it happened in Minnesota for years, that families are asking, so so who is responsible? Who is responsible for the care? Uh, with the new assisted living res- re- licensure in Minnesota a couple of years ago. This issue had been addressed, has been addressed, not fully, but it has been addressed as a singular uh, entity responsible for the care. And you can't say, oh, it's just, it's that home health agency, they're bringing the care in, because that split creates fragmentation, communication breakdowns, and neglect. So this really comes down to understanding who, who you've actually contracted with in, in general. The institution or the corporation may own the facility which it becomes a real estate investment deal. And then it's the service provider, which could be a totally separate entity that you have contracted with, but there may be some relationship between the service provider and the building owner, which may have a name upon another name and it's wrapped up into other areas. Do you find that if a family member is going into a a facility to research or basically, I say shopping for care facilities, that if they actually ask the general manager, or whoever it is, is giving the tour of, of, I call it the hotel, which is not really a hotel, that they will themselves know who the actual owner is? Meaning the managers? Yeah. It probably depends on the circumstance, but one would hope. It depends on how complex that structure is. You would think that a manager should know who actually owns the company because they provide the resources or not. It may be more complex than that. So they could report into their bosses, but they may not necessarily know who the boss's bosses are. I don't know the answer to that. It's probably a more individual, local question, right? Depending on the particular circumstance. So I don't know. What, what I do know is that we're talking about care and money, but uh, we don't talk a lot about trust. And, and t- one of the things that is tied to the trust is the full disclosure. When you buy a refrigerator, you know a lot about that, right? When you buy a car, you know a lot about that. But when you... More than you had a care home these days, right? right. So when you sign an agreement to live in a care home, in assisted living, oftentimes you don't know a lot. In fact, that's one of the challenges that we have as researchers, as advocates, as families, is that the truth is that we don't know a lot about the quality in assisted living because it's not, oftentimes it's not required and the quality is low. And it's, I believe that it's to a large extent, it's strategic. So we can talk about how to evaluate or vet assisted living, but we have to recognize that we are dealing with an inherent limitation here, and it's by design. It's not something that is just randomly happened to be the case. And that's unfortunate. On top of that, there's a lot of deceptive marketing practices going on. And there's the famous tour where you go for your husband or for your parent, and they're making the director of marketing 
makes all these promises. We're going to do this for, for your dad or your wife and we're going to keep them safe. And it looks like hotel. And a lot of families fall into that trap. And uh, I say the fact that it looks like hotel doesn't mean anything about whether it's user-friendly, elder-friendly, and dementia-friendly. The fact that it looks uh, nice on the portfolio of the architect with the chandeliers and all those uh, patterns on the wall and carpeting with patterns, it's actually the exact opposite of what, for example, people living with dementia need. So that's some of the things that we see families uh, because they trust, right? And then shortly later, they discover that there's a tremendous lack of, of staffing. There's lack of training. Managers are not there. It's hard to find staff members. There's lack of meaningful engagement. But it looks like hotel. It's like there's such a dissonance. And that's, that's also a part of the, the marketing strategy when they call these places memory care homes. When, in fact, I can't stand that name. It's, we're caring for human beings. And memory is just one part of it, right? Um, so that's a concern. That's a very good point. I prefer to call the memory wings or areas the lockdown ward because those doors are there. And, and you and I have talked about this, but for those who have never toured one of these facilities, whether they be looking like a hotel or say you're looking behind the velvet curtain to find a different kind of Oz, that a, a locked door does not necessarily mean that your parent or loved one is safe. It just means that they can't necessarily get out of a certain environment, which to some extent can be helpful. But the quality of the care that goes behind those doors or goes on behind those doors can be a whole nother scenario that you are totally unaware of because you don't have the ability to see it in action. And that's key. We're going to take a short break and we'll get back to these issues. But there's so much that I want to cover Elon, that I know we're going to probably have another show to do very shortly. We'll be back in a second. Elder Care Success, as you know, has reached its 100th episode. And 2024 is going to be a great year. Even if you're going through a little bit of stress or a lot of stress and strain in caring for somebody that you love. And thankfully, we're being of help to many. Here's a message from one of our listeners, Craig. Hi, Nancy. My name's Craig. I was just listening to the episode of Finding Money at the Social Security Offices and wanted to let you know that I found it very informative. I enjoyed the conversation that you had with your guests and hope to hear more in the future. Thank you. Craig, I am so glad that that episode was of help to you and your family. There's a lot more in store for 2024, as you and hopefully everybody else know. I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments. Please do so by clicking on the link on eldercaresuccess.live. It's a side tab on the page. It's very easy to do, and all you need to do is press the button to record. There's a lot more in store for 2024, so stay tuned. And now, back to my discussion with Elian. This is a fascinating discussion, and there's so much that we can dive into this. What I'd like to do is go into some of the areas that you've researched that we should really be on the alert for and what to look for. I know one of them, just even figuring out if there's anything wrong, is people need to understand that you it's very difficult to find litigation or lawsuits that are going on in a care home because of the the arbitration clauses that people sign. So arbitration clauses, for those who are not aware of and are listening, the results of whether you won or lost are not public information. A regular lawsuit where there's been 
open litigation you can find judgments on, but arbitration you can't. So most of these facilities have arbitration clauses on them, as well as hospitals. So that's something to be aware of as far as doing your research and your homework. What are some of the other things? If I may just relate to this, and when you sign, and sometimes it's a tiny footnote, and you're in distress or in a crisis situation when you move your loved one and you sign it, when you sign the pre-admission arbitration clauses, you are basically giving your constitutional right to sue the assisted living resident if something bad were to happen to your loved one. So you're removing, you're giving up your right. Yes, exactly. That's important for people to understand. And the other thing, neither of us are lawyers, but we know enough about what happens in this particular space is that the, this is a horrible thing to say, but the value of a life of an older person in the court system is pretty low. So if you are to sue and you do win, what you win, unfortunately, you don't win because your loved one may be gone, is typically fairly low. And there are very few attorneys who are willing to take this on because it's not a profit center for them. Are you seeing that as well? Well, I know lawyer, first of all, every elder law attorney is different. I know some that are very compassionate. They are doing also advocacy. They also take people with low income, meaning uh, that they know that they may not make a lot of money, but they care. They truly care. They go to the capital and they yeah. advocate. On the other hand, there's those that will not will not take a case below a million, and they know they, and they have so many requests, so many families reaching out that they are they can ch- uh, cherry pick the one that are slam dunk, so to speak, on their end, and mm-hmm. to make a lot of money. So it really varies. So to get back to the abuse situation. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the things that that people can keep their eyes and ears out for when they're actually looking for a facility for mom and dad? And I'm going to put the caveat here too. Don't wait for a crisis to happen when you really need to make this decision. And don't put that that responsibility to, to accept the options that you have from a hospital or a rehab facility. Right. And again, with the caveat, what I describe is a lot of assisted living residences are literally flying under the radar without a black box. And even when something bad happens, it's sometimes hard to pinpoint what happened because the documentation, the culture of safety and the culture of documentation, of nursing documentation, the lack of nursing profession, oftentimes meaningful presence of qualified RNs, etc. So that also creates a challenge even when you want to sue or when you want to understand what happened. So. There's also concealment of evidence. But to your question, just to kind of take it from where you left it, yes, one of the most important things is to do, to the extent possible is to start your search early, okay? Don't wait for the crisis and don't wait to the extent possible. And it's not always possible. We know that you can have an acute right. condition, you go to the hospital, you decline, and then they're telling you you have 24 hours to find a place. So it's not always possible, but to the extent possible. You also, also should know that the high-quality care homes uh, may have a wait list. So that's another something, something to consider. And high quality, we'll put in quotes because you don't necessarily know until you're there sometimes. Right, right. But I know of high quality assisted living that have long wait lists. And so do, don't Correct. wait, start early, get on wait list and go, go and tour places when you're not in a crisis situation. Another thing to do is to consult with the state ombudsman office. They get a lot of complaints from care settings, some of them. 
in some state might be willing to share with you which care providers at least to avoid. You also want to check the state, what is called state survey and complaint investigation report that are completed and de-identified that are posted online by state survey agencies. Oftentimes it will be the health department in your state. But that being said, as of a couple of years ago, only 19 states in the assisted living sector had those investigation reports posted online. And in some states, even when they're posted online, it's not easy to navigate, to know where it is. And even if you found the website, it's not easy to navigate it. So one state in Minnesota, the elder voice advocates developed what is called Elder Care IQ, which in one click, you can find all the recent investigation reports that were completed by the health department at the level of the assisted living, specific assisted living. And that makes a huge difference for families. One more thing there, just because you mentioned about the reports. One of the things that we recently discovered is in looking at some of the care facilities in the state of Florida is if you go in and look at the restaurant or the, I'll call it the kitchen or where they get the ABCD grades in, in public restaurants or restaurants that you might go to, they have to go through the same rating in most of these care facilities. You may actually find that the care facility that you're taking mom to has a D rating in their kitchen. That's a red flag. Because if the D rating is in the kitchen, what else is happening in the rest of the facility? And I remember talking to one aide who had worked in a kitchen in a, in a care facility, and she said, the average amount of money that we were given or budget per person per day was $3 for food. So just imagine the nutrition. Forget about the cleanliness of the kitchen. It's just what kind of food right. is being fed beyond the, the crab salad that you're given when you get to go see the the, the facility on, uh, I call it Luau Fridays. When, when we know that food is so central in our lives. Correct. It's part of our social being, right? Exactly. So another thing to consider is see whether you have a close friend or neighbor or coworker who recently had a loved one in that particular assisted living that you are considering. Be aware of biased in-house satisfaction surveys. 95% of our residents love the care here. Well, you have to look who constructed the survey questions and whether they cherry-picked the residents or families that they know are happy with the care. So that's another landmine right there. Uh, you want to check the local media reports. Sometimes there's reports in the media about poor care, neglect, abuse, etc. Can I go back a second and ask on those, uh, on those surveys or reviews, oh, 95% of our, our residents love it. 95% is great. You want to hear about the other 5%. Their, their complaints may not be justified. But how do you find out whether those surveys are biased or well, not? Well, one of the things that must happen is that this, the organization that is in charge of planning, executing, analyzing, interpreting, and, and compiling the results of the satisfaction survey must be completely independent entity. Unfortunately, many times that's not the case. And how do you find out whether the entity is truly independent? That could be a challenge at times. Yeah, I'm glad you answered that one because they say uh, trust is a good thing for somebody else to have, especially when you're dealing with care facilities. Right, right. right? You definitely want to speak with the residents who are cognitively able, of course, and family members of current residents to the extent possible. And you want to ask them specifically, how do you feel about the care? your privacy, your safety? Would you recommend this place to another person? 
And you want to, again, you want to approach them to the extent possible, as opposed to the cherry picking that could take place. Um, now, that's a little difficult sometimes because you're walking through a hallway and you might ask somebody while you're standing there with a tour director. I might recommend that you ask if you can sit down and have a meal during the hour that meals are being served with other residents so that you can sit down and get to know them. Beautiful. What you expect is the person who kind of walks you through the building, if, they, if they're proud and they care, they should have no issue introducing you or allowing you to approach. Of course, there's issues of privacy if a resident feels uncomfortable or whatever. But if you're proud in your care, you know, why not allow the person to speak with the individuals uh, a bit more freely, right? Without this kind of orchestrated, let's go to this person in the corner. Or Sally, who's walking down the hall. Also, these tour directors, I'll call them, it's like being on the love boat, for those who know the love boat or Disney World. <laughs> but they, um, they are often outside entities that are being paid to market the facility, and they can turn over pretty quickly. So you want to find out if they're an outside independent marketer who is doing this. That's a good point. And how long they have been there. I right. have seen that as well. You know, I went to one, I do secret shopping of care facilities. I was at one tour and I started to ask too many questions in front of the crowd that was there. And they said, could we talk to you on the side? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're going to lose all our customers that we just spent the crab salad on. Right. And, and granted, a resident may not necessarily feel comfortable speaking when there's a director of marketing hovering over them. So can you allow people to speak quietly, privately? I mean, if you're proud of your care, again, why not? I would say also speak with the uh, resident council presidents. If they have one. If they if have they a resident have council. Yep. And, or family council president or the, the people who are very involved over time because they yeah. may be aware of some issues. Uh, but again, as you said, uh, there will be assisted living who uh, don't have it. Or they have it as a lip service. They just say, oh, we have a family council, we have our resident council, but then you see how it's being actually operated. It's not in a way uh, that it was intended originally, meaning the goal of the resident council was not, is not done in the way that it's meant to be. So with, that means without privacy or who's taking notes, are they listening to the concern, what are they doing about it, are they right. truly resolving the issues, et cetera. The other thing is to speak with staff members because the quality of care is only as good as the quality of support, guidance, and work conditions of staff members. That may be yeah. actually difficult to do. So if you're living in the area where the resident is or the, the facility is, I would highly recommend just hanging out at a Panera Bread or one of the casual dining places because quite frankly, the aides and the others will go out to have lunch there and start asking questions of people who are standing in line with you. And you'll know who they are because they're usually wearing scrubs of some sort. Chances are these people will know exactly what's going on in different facilities and outside the environment on somebody else's soil. You treat them nice, they will sing like canaries. I think it's a very good idea. I, would st I still believe and know that the good places have no issue allowing their staff to speak freely because they always do that. And I'm well aware of fear of retaliation, not only by residents, because I studied this issue. The staff members also, too, right? Also staff, uh, studied staff fear of retaliation of managers, coworkers, and supervisors. So I'm acutely aware of it. And still I'm saying the good places should not have a problem because they're not trying to hide anything. Please, we would like you to speak with our staff. Right. It's tough to know the good places when you're out looking at multiple because even you won't get 
you, you get your own kind of bias now that you've built up and you've looked at several. And sometimes it's just overwhelming to figure out which is which and where they are. So just being able to take a breath and and say, trust but verify. Not that you're being right. a snoop, but you want to investigate because this is somebody's life. And they don't, if it's a bad place, what it's anywhere between six to 24 months on average that somebody will live well in, in a facility. That's pretty short, if, unless you want to say goodbye to mom and dad like now. Right. And I would say exactly to that, trust your gut. Because if you sense, not only beyond the part, the, the parameters, quantifications right. of whatever, staffing levels of number of activities, whatever. I don't like the word activities, but meaningful engagement. There is a vibe. You walk into a place and you have the warmth temperature, if you will. You sense some, not only the smell test, that's another issue, but also you say, are there are, an energy level, yeah, right? Energy. What is the, are people thriving here? Are people socially, emotionally, spiritually thriving here? Or, or I see something else. Is it crowded? Is it overstimulated? Is it noisy place? Is this a place I would want to live here? And also, um, when I walk with a staff member, the person who leads me through the building, is there a, 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 a kind of a, a, a layer of control? Is there a sense of things mm. are being, um, there's a show being put right now? Or it's more spontaneous, organic, right? and things are happening in a more authentic way. And so that's the gut feeling when, that comes in. There's a facility that I know of that my cousin was working at for a short while and beautiful, absolutely. It's a continued care residence or community. And they started to have some tight financial situations. So all those special events and those activities that you paid in with you and your parents, well, guess what? The lights were turned off in the activity rooms. The activity director was put on furlough. All those extra benefits, the fun, the out, the outside entertainment that may have even happened right. inside right. was cut. Now, your bill wasn't cut, but those numbers are coming down because there aren't as many people coming in as much and beautiful as the place was. Guess what? Yes, absolutely. And there's a difference between the stated number of hours of meaningful of, of activities and the actual, the same with staffing levels, the same thing happens. We see it all the time. And by the way, also special care units, there's a huge spectrum, anything from a locked door, not much more. And on the other hand, it's real true, endless commitment to the endless journey of culture change. So, but with that, I, I want to mention that you want to visit the place at different hours of the day, evening and weekends and holidays. And you also want to, to, to speak with a social worker. Uh, unfortunately, many assisted living don't hire it. And it's, it's really a, a big problem uh, because they are critical for the psychosocial well-being. Uh, they have a lot of training and understanding, assessing and, and enhancing the psychosocial well-being and rights of residents. They are truly the advocates, although they're often between a, a rock and a hard place with management. And I've been a social worker in, in that in nursing home, and I know, but if you have a social worker in assisted living, it could be an invaluable resource because they probably know a lot about the place. I want to say uh, something about the, the activities. It is really critical. We, we talk about regulations as a minimum standard. Some states require one hour in assisted living, require one hour of activities a day when they have a lot of people with dementia, advanced stage of dementia. This is outrageous. 
because it's a recipe for neglect. You know, and what constitutes an activity? Is that sitting there painting somebody's nails in front of the television? Well, it's definitely not the random TV and advertising and also the content that could be very distressing on TV or sometimes for residents with dementia, but also sometimes TV is used for staff members and not for residents. So that we see too. But with regards to one of the best things that assisted living can do, and you need to check, is that they have a robust, comprehensive, high-quality, meaningful engagement program that doesn't stop before 8 p.m. And yes, there should be breaks. They should be tailor, uh, uh, personally tailored to the residents' needs on the individual level. And in the evening, they should be more calm, not overstimulating activities, obviously. Sure. But some of the best places that I've seen in the country, they do not stop the meaningful game until 8 p.m. And they allow residents to stay and socialize even later. So that's another indicator. You go many times, you see 2 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 3 o'clock, done. And guess what's happening to people with dementia it, um, in, the, in the early evening hours? Sunday hours. Yeah, that, you know, they, it, I don't like that term, but it's more the restlessness, the tiredness. Right. And, and guess what? There's less meaningful engagement. There's less managers. There's less staffing. And they're bored. And now a lot of things can go wrong and they don't have the managers to guide them through that. The staff members don't have the managers. So evenings are vulnerability time periods and weekends too. I should mention that too. Because staffing levels are low and, and they don't have the engagement or interaction and they're let there to, to sit there and just wait for the hours to go by, which is, to me, that sounds kind of like an institution and not an institution in a good way. Yeah. The woman had a husband with dementia. She asked me to come in. She, she was concerned about care. She was paying, I think, $10,000 a month and another $9,000 for private companion. Oh, that's nothing. Uh, yeah, yeah, I get it. And I walk in, there's residents slumped on wheelchairs in front of random TV. Most of the time, there was no meaningful engagement. And the place looked like hotel, again. And the care that he received was very neglectful. And when I go in to, to consult with families, I don't ask for the administrators to come in. No. Some of them are coming from the hotel industry. They have no idea what they're sitting on. Of course, there's good administrators. But I ask for the owner and the corporate managers to come because they call the shots, right? Well, and the shots may stop after you leave. So understanding that this is not a one and done scenario. And sometimes the manager can only do as much as they're allowed to do. So it may not always be their fault. And not that I'm giving them a, a free ride, but understanding the chain of command is critical. Right. So moving to talk a little bit about physical environment. So in general, small scale works better, particularly for people with dementia. Some of the best places have eight to 10 people like the greenhouse of the Indian alternative. When you start to see the 30, 40 person in, a, in this floor plan that is very, it's like a, it's very difficult to navigate with dementia. It also has implications for the staff ability to supervise. You have one or two staff members for 30 to 40 people. Like something's going to happen when, you know, Aunt yeah. Sally down the hall has to go to the bathroom and, and your Uncle Bob. A lot of things can happen. A lot of things can happen. Somebody could fall. Somebody could have a hypoglycemic uh, episode. Somebody could fight with another resident over a chair and you're on the other side. Uh, sadly, a lot of times there's float stuff. They bring it from the other units and they don't know the residents. It's all about close trusting relationship or you bring external agency stuff. That's another red flag uh, that we're seeing a lot uh, before the pandemic, but now even more. And the nurse may be in a completely different building in the campus, or she's uh, doing paperwork inside a staff room and not, not being able to be present and to provide that guidance. Yep. Uh, so that's another piece. But the small scale, 
also goes into the bedroom. Ideally, it should be a private bedroom and a private bathroom. We talk about dignity and privacy and infection control. But of course, there are always going to be people who would prefer to have a companion and a roommate is okay, but you have to monitor it carefully and you have to see because dementia is progressive and what works yesterday, what worked yesterday may not work today. And also, even friends can reach a breaking point, right? They may be arguing about things inside the, the bedroom, but private bedroom and private uh, bathroom uh, with exceptions that accommodate partners or, or spouses or residents that prefer to have a roommate that provide this companionship and support, and that's okay. There's so much in this process, including just what this really emphasizes for those who are listening and, and you who are listening, especially if you're looking at this or you're in a stressful situation and you have to find a place. One, because you can't do it yourself anymore or you don't have the support at home. Please know that you can bring in aids into your own home. You can get the medical support in your own home. You do not have to rely on a care facility to do it. And it is doable. If you've got one aid, don't rely on one. Get two, three, four. We had six, sometimes eight on a staff, not all at once, but we also dealt with two parents. So understanding that is key. The other thing I want to add, and Elon, you know this as well, that is if your parent is in a care facility and they have to go to the emergency room and you are in, I'll say Connecticut, like I was, and your mom and dad are in Florida or Maryland, they are going to go to the ER alone. Nobody is going to go with them. And they are not going to come back from the emergency situation better, mentally, physically, or emotionally. Absolutely. That's a huge issue. And they may also suffer needlessly during the hospitalization itself. If you have advanced stage of dementia and they may tie you down or chemically restrain you, it could be traumatic. And many people leave the hospital in a worse condition than they went in. So always make sure that somebody who loves that person and cares about this person deeply. And I recognize that some families live several states away, but make sure that somebody from the staff, at least, really truly cares, goes with that person. But to that, for that to happen, they got to be, you know, a lot of families are left in the dark. They discovered the hospitalization after the fact or in the midst. You have to immediately notify the legally authorized representative, usually the close family member, that something there's a change in condition immediately. That's another issue we're seeing. And they don't always do that. Exactly. They, I heard of one recently where their mom was sent to the emergency room and they didn't find out about it till seven or eight o'clock in the morning. And this happened in the middle of the night. Oh, but we really didn't want to worry and wake you up in the middle of the night. What do you mean not wake me up in the middle of the night and worry me about, about it? That's, this is, we did an episode on the Caregivers Network. This is where it's critical to have other friends, family members, whoever you can rely on that live close by to your folks, if you do not, who are willing to say, yes, Nancy, please call me if your mom has to go to the emergency room. I will be there to be your eyes and ears until you can get here. Yeah, if possible. And oftentimes, as you said, it can happen in the middle of the night. So people should be yep. ready for that too. I want to add another important parameter is staff turnover. Staff turnover is a very important indicator not only of uh, staffing stability and satisfaction, working conditions, but also quality of care. I want to also mention the importance of training or education. I don't like the word training, but it's education for staff members, not only direct staff, but also indirect, because it's critically important that the housekeeping, maintenance, front desk, 
dietary staff will have because they are the ones who are often in regular contact with residents. And when, when we talk about education, we talk about orientation training, the scope of it, in-service training, every month a new pressing issue. And one of the most important uh, components of education is what we call experiential learning. On the floor, as it happens, when the manager are there and providing this supportive guidance, this is a term that my colleague from Minnesota, uh, Nancy Hogan, came up with, supportive guidance. I don't like the word managers supervising stuff. It's supportive guidance. It's collaborative, right? And also the scope. In some states, they require 10 hours of care, uh, dementia care training. They take people off the street. In Texas, to become someone who cares for your nails and your hair, they require 400 hours. Ooh. So are we putting our priorities straight here? And also, it's the mo modality in which the education is provided. Some places just say, oh, yeah, just do this online module in your time. Right. And they, there's no interaction and you don't know the quality and you don't know what they're getting out of it. They may live in the middle or watch it at home. So the in-person by somebody who is qualified and experienced, it's critical. So the majority of the education should be in-person by somebody qualified. And, and yes, there's advantage of online training. For example, in remote rural places, you can access thousands more people, obviously, and it's more efficient and cost-effective, but the majority should be in-person. There's so much here that we're dealing with including just understanding discharge policies, which we'll have to go, I think, into another episode on this because the whole aspect of what they call in California senior dumping does happen. It's a real situation. It does not happen in California alone. It happens all around the country and it happens in other countries. So, Elon, I'd, I'd love to continue the conversation because we could be on here for probably another two hours right. easily. Right. If I may <laughs> just say one last thing, Sure. One last issue, because it's so at the heart of all of this. One of the things that is indicator of care is the extent to which and the quality to which director staff members know about you as a whole human being. And right. to know your early life history, to what extent the pre-admission screening process, the admission process, has a robust mechanism to collect information about you as a human being, maybe with 80, 90 years of life, you're a unique human being. You had a unique childhood. You have a certain coping uh, style and likes and dislikes and things that work for you and calm you and upset you. And you have a value system and a, a worldview. Do they know you really well? That's an indicator of care. So when I see that they don't do the pre-admission screening in your home, and sometimes it's not possible because you may come from a hospital or there's a crisis situation, it's, or coming from another state, I get it. But at the same time, I developed a, a piece that it's called 20 Reasons Why We Need to Know the Early Life History of People with Dementia. And it's included in the document on vetting assisted living, how to vet assisted living residents that I share with you. And hopefully we can share with the listeners. Yes. But that to me, if they are not serious about that, and not just to collect it, because sometimes they collect it and they tack it in the clinical records and nobody reads it. So what did we do? So can you create, can somebody distill it, synthesize it into 10, seven things, the most important things that we need to know about this individual as a human being before their dementia, before their serious complex health condition? That's an indicator of care. The, I mean, so we can have the interaction. There was an independent care facility that we moved my folks out to for a short period of time after the first one we moved them out of, which was like 30,000 plus and growing a month. And what fascinated me was that this was not a fancy facility in 
I'll call it the extent of the type of care was purely independent, meaning a room, three meals a day, and somebody who was over the manager was overseeing. There was a gentleman and his wife who managed the facility, and uh, they introduced me to a fellow who sat at my dad's table, who was the former chief economist to Ronald Reagan. And what a wonderful, kind, quiet, gentle fellow he was. We had lovely conversations. And all he wanted to do was just be there with somebody to have a conversation, not necessarily about business or politics or economic status and what was going on, but just to be another human being sitting in the room, sharing life experiences. So you just never know who's going to be sitting at mom and dad's table and beside yourself. Right. So right. Open, open the conversation and ask questions and and show show interest. Right, right. And make sure that all direct all all director staff who come with direct regular client with your residents know the life history of the person. And of course there's confidentiality issues, it could be sensitive issues, it could be traumas, abusing childhood. But this needs to be handled, for example, by a social worker or uh, in a very careful way, what the family the person or the family are willing to share. I would say that there was a story a few years ago that two veterans were in the same care home and one of them went to the other resident's bedroom, kept going back to him. And when they started learning about the history, they learned that they served in the same unit decades ago oh my in a gosh. war. Wow. And the one who went into the bedroom with the other resident was a paramedic. Oh, my goodness. And he recognized him, but he maybe couldn't, couldn't say it in words. And, and, so that, and also, another gem that I learned, another the most important thing to learn is that Residents can often teach us about compassion because they may see themselves in the future in other residents, right? And I would add to that that in England, there's a position, a full-time position. It's called the locksmith position, where one of the job descriptions is to know the early life history of the people they care for because those gems allow us to understand the human being and not to label them certain ways, aggressive and such. And that can also help provide adequate, dignified, and safe care and calm them down when we need to. And I want to just close by saying, trust your gut. And as you said, but check the facts when they are publicly available, right? And get involved, go in there, build relationship with the staff member to the extent that you can and help the staff, support the staff, get involved with the family council, with the resident council and build relationship. And then through that, you could also provide education for staff and get involved with the ombudsman and help them succeed. And through that relationship, you might be in a better position to advocate for improvement. And sometimes families are pushed to the corner and they complain and they try to make improvement and nothing happened and they put a camera. So I know a lot of families who put a camera and yes, you need to respect privacy of other residents, roommates, etc. But sometimes it's the last resort. And then you can capture things and there's nothing like a video that actually demonstrates what happened, not what he said or she Some said. Some residents may not or facilities may not allow cameras, but where there's a will, there's a way. And if you're fearful of someone's safety that you love and you care for and who cared for you. And you pay so much money for it. There's a will, there's a way, and you've got a backup. It's not something you could legally put in a court of law, but it will certainly catch people off, off guard. And the other last thing I'll, I will say, Elon, is before we go, is if you have any concern about a care facility that a family member or parent or somebody you love is in, 
do not be afraid to take them out and move them to another one or bring them home, whatever it is. Those facilities will tell you, oh, it's not a good idea. In fact, the facility where my folks were, the head nurse who encouraged us to leave when I gave our 30-day notice said, oh, you know, that's not a good idea because most people will die within 30 or 60 days. Well, guess what? 10 years later, they would have died if we kept them there. Right, so, right. And, and, and yes. Fear and tactics, what, don't be afraid of them. Right, yeah. because it's oftentimes about the bottom line. However, we need to recognize that for other people, they do need to consider the serious complex health conditions. The transitions could be difficult. It could be traumatic for some people, for example, some people with dementia. So it's always, it's a very individual question. But again, you got to trust your instinct and, and don't be afraid to ask questions early. That's another thing. Don't be afraid to advocate. Don't be intimidated. It's your right. You're paying a lot of money for that. And you have the right to ask questions. And if they're not seeing the family as an integral part of the care, here's another red flag right there. Get out. Yeah. And when you do make that transition, if you have to, there are ways to do it to make that new place look like home very easily. And if you need help with that, reach out and let me know because we have ways to do that as well. And it's not as difficult as you might think. It takes a little bit of time. But with that, Elon, thank you so much. I am also going to share in the episode notes for you who are listening, the a link to the children's book that Elon has written as well, which I think is beautiful and gives us a chance to bring the entire family of all generations into this time where we're actually caring for those we love at the later stage of life. And as I'd like to say, it's because every day counts, right? Yeah. Thank you, Nancy. Uh, thank you for inviting me to speak with you about this important issue. Thanks for getting the word out about our children's book, What I've Learned About Grandma's Memory, which my hope is that it will help shift perceptions from stigma to real hope. People living in advanced stages of a dementia in care homes. Absolutely. So on that note, thank you again for joining me here today. I look forward to many conversations going forward. For those who are listening, that's you. Please know that this is a gift that you can give to a loved one, a family member, a friend, or anybody that you see who is dealing with some stress and some challenge of taking care of somebody that they love, and they may be just starting down this road. Why? Because it can be your gift for them. Just a link to the show. It's pretty easy. And we do have a YouTube channel, which is kind of fun because we've got some videos over there. And it's my gift and Elon's gift to you. Take care. We'll see you soon, and we'll hear you soon. Bye-bye. This show is sponsored by Caremanity, the publishers of How to Survive 911 Medical Emergencies, a step-by-step guide before, during, and after. For your own personalized free file of life, go to www.howtosurvive911.com. All trademarks, brands, and comments are not intended to be substitutes for medical, financial, or legal advice. Please consult a medical, legal, or financial professional for issues relevant to your own personal situation. This show is produced by Caremanity LLC. All rights reserved. Copyright Caremanity LLC. 